0: You know, once upon a time, there was a, um, there was a young prince of England named Edward Tudor, and he uh, one day, well, so he, he, Edward Tudor being the prince that he was, he was used to um, the finer things of life. He was used to the greatest of clothes. He was used to the, the finest of foods. He was used to having servants at his beck and call, servant, fetch me this water, servant, Lay my clothes out for the next day. Servant, pick that toy up and bring it to me. I mean, wh- wh- whatever the prince wanted, he got. Okay? He, had, uh, he had a lot of structure in his life, um, you know, becoming, uh, becoming the, the heir apparent and needing to grow and his understanding of what it meant to be a king and all those types of things. He, he had lessons and books and schooling and, and structure and, and um, uh, etiquette to learn and all that kind of thing. At the same time, there lived a young peasant boy named Tom Canty. Okay, this young peasant boy, also known as a pauper, you'll know where I'm going with this. He was used to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. He was used to very little food. He was used to no education. No finer things in life. He was used to having to go out, being made by his dad to go out and to beg in the streets. And he was used to being abused and struck by his dad if he did not uh, bring in enough money from his begging. He was used to no comfort, uh, enduring the elements, uh, dirt floor, drudgery. So these two boys, on opposite ends of the proverbial spectrum there of, of life and comfort, one day they met. Through a gate of the, of the palace grounds, they met and they started talking about life. And they were both so fascinated by the other's lives. You know, the, 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 the prince was was amazed that this boy he could just wander around and do whatever. Um, there, were, there was no schedule, there was no structure, there was no expectation other than just beg and bring home money. And the, the pauper was amazed at the thought of, of food and clothes and kind people and, and, and those sort of things. And so they decided to... Um, to exchange clothes. And just even in the midst of, of exchanging clothes, feel the difference of what is it like to wear the clothes of a prince? And what is it like to wear the clothes of a pauper? Just to get that tangible experience. So they did that. And then through a series of events, they end up actually living each other's lives for a period of time. And the pauper became the prince. And the prince became the pauper. And so this prince, who was used to all those finer things, became the pauper, and he experienced the abuse and the drudgery and the begging and the dirt and the discomfort. And the pauper, who was used to all those things, then experienced the finer things of life, and he experienced the food and the clothing and the servant and the palace and all of those types of things. And, and the story goes on. It's by Mark Twain story goes on, and, and what they experience, and um, eventually how they end up uh, re, regaining their, their proper roles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that, that exchange of the prince and the pauper swapping lives, swapping clothes, and swapping lives, and the, and the prince becoming the pauper, and the pauper becoming the prince, in a small way illustrates the point of our passage this morning. We're going to be talking about an exchange of places, an exchange of privileges, an exchange of roles. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's consider this together as Paul lays out two reality-altering exchanges in his explanation of reconciliation. Two reality-altering exchanges in his explanation of reconciliation. So let's read, starting from verse 16. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You can see the topic at hand here. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, this is humbling ground. This is, uh, this is um, all of your word is sacred, but the truths here are, are, are staggering in scope and implication and impact. So please bless, uh, bless me with clarity. Bless everyone here with receptive hearts and a teachable spirit to hear and to understand so that we might be amazed at who you are and what you have done, so that we might be humbled at who we are, and what we have gained. And that uh, again, Lord, that this this would be one step further in each of our processes of, of of sanctification, of living lives that honor and glorify you. And and as we grow in those things, that it then then leaks out into every aspect of our life, our families, our neighbors, our our coworkers, our 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 school environments, all these things. Lord, that we would shine Christ all the brighter. For your name's sake, amen. So like I said, we're going to be looking at two reality-altering exchanges in this verse. And the first one, thinking back to the illustration, we could call it the prince's exchange. Okay, the prince's exchange, which was sinlessness for sin, Look at the first phrase. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So he made. You have to stop and you have to ask. Who's he? Who's he? It refers just just right back to verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he, God, made God is the causation agent behind this exchange that we're going to study. Okay, and the prince and the pauper, they both decided to go ahead and just and, and and do the switch, but in but in this in this situation, God himself is the causation of the exchange that we'll be looking at. It was his plan. It was his his purposeful intention and it was absolutely entirely unequivocally under his control. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 2. This fact was known even from the very beginning. It was proclaimed from the very beginning that God was in control. God was the one who had formed the plan and superintended the plan and brought about the plan of redemption and reconciliation. So in one of Peter's very first sermons in Acts chapter 2, Start in verse 22. This is what Peter says. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He made. This exchange that we're going to study is an exchange transacted by God. God the Father set the plan in motion. He superintended the plan and he carried it out. And what did he made? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Him is Jesus. This whole whole passage is really clearly focused on the tag team effort of God the Father and God the Son to achieve reconciliation. If you look back in verse 18 and 19 that we just read a moment ago, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So God makes Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. What does it mean that Jesus knew no sin? Does it mean that Jesus was just unaware of of any sin around him it's like he had this, this rose-colored, these rose-colored glasses of righteousness on so that he wasn't aware of, of sins that were, were committed against him or the sins that went on around him. And we know that that's not the case. We know that he was blasphemed. We know that he was reviled. We know that he was struck. We know that he was betrayed. Jesus knew In the sense of that mental awareness, he he knew all about sin. I mean, my goodness, he even knew about the sin that was in people's hearts, that they hadn't even expressed or communicated. Jesus knew about those things. But this knowing here is, is a familiarity achieved through experience or association. See, Christ did not know sin in that he never became familiar with it through his own experience of sin, or his own association, think hand-in-glove association, with sin. We can find multiple attestations of this, but let's look at just a few of them. Look at uh, John chapter 7. Jesus himself acknowledges this, that he, he, he was righteous. He never sinned, never knew sin. John chapter 7, verse 18 It says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But, here he starts speaking about himself in third person. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus himself held forth the fact that there was no unrighteousness in him. Peter then affirms that fact in one of his sermons. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. Again, he's charging the unbelievers around him. It says, uh, we'll start in verse 12. Peter saw this. He replied to the, the, the people, men of Israel, why, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned, listen to his description, the holy and righteous one. Peter knew that Jesus was holy and righteous, attributes only attributed to God. The writer of Hebrews also affirms this in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse fifteen, it says, or fourteen. therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin." You can note a little bit of intensification there, even that wasn't just sort of existing in this sinless bubble, and 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 there was no no temptation within this this three foot perimeter around him. That that as he walked through life, it was just sort of this this sinless bubble of of of, of sin repellent. He was tempted, and yet never sinned. Absolutely sinless. Th- think about that. Thirty three years. Thirty-three years, give or take, Jesus Christ lived as a man. He was a child, and so He was perfectly righteous in obedience. He was perfectly righteous in His attitudes. He was perfectly righteous in His actions towards His siblings, towards others. As a teenager, as a young man, he's a young teenager... He was perfectly righteous in his, inter- in his interaction with girls. He was perfectly righteous in his behavior toward his parents, in his pursuit of godliness as a young man. And then moving into the 20s, we, could, we presume that he learned the, the carpentry trade. So he was perfectly righteous as he was swinging a hammer, and maybe he hit his thumb. I don't know. That's not a sin to hit your thumb. Maybe he did, but he was righteous in his response if he did, never knew sin. As he was sweating in the shop, working hard, long days, as he was dealing with customers who you know from human experience that that is not always an easy interaction, as he was living in the community as a young man, never knew sin, one decade, two decades. And then as he started his ministry in his 30s, as he walked and walked and walked and walked and never complained, never grumbled, as he dealt with ornery and dense disciples, he never got upset, he never got impatient, as he was being blasphemed against and attacked by society He had no fleshly responses, zero. As he was falsely accused and cruelly tortured and viciously nailed to a cross, there was no bitterness, no anger, no hatred. Think about your own days. Think about your own days as you interact with your siblings, with your parents, with your coworkers, with the customers, with 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 the traffic on the way to work or from work. And think about your own sin and your own fleshly responses and how much sin Jesus did not know because of how much sin we do know. Forget just a day. Thirty three years of sinlessness. Listen to First Peter. Chapter 2, in verse 21, it says this For you have been called for this purpose. It's talking about being submissive even in the midst of hard times. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Jesus Christ, the one who suffered, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Stop and think about What do you usually do when you're reviled? Whether you express it or not, where does your heart go when you are reviled? While suffering... He uttered no threats. What's our gut response when we suffer? But instead, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 33 years opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for sin to enter into his life as a man, and yet he never was acquainted with it, never experienced it, never was personally associated or knew sin in all of that time, all that time, all that perfection. All that life of total obedience and righteousness, and yet God made him sin. In his hours on the cross, before Jesus cried out, It is finished, and yielded up his own spirit, God made him to be sin. Now, be careful. On the one hand, God didn't make him a sinner. Jesus didn't become a sinner. The nature of Jesus was not changed. The sinless God-man did not suddenly become a sinner worthy of punishment. He has been sinless from eternity past. He was sinless as a man on earth, and he will be sinless for eternity to come. And on the other hand, though, he didn't just sort of make him a stand-in for sin. He didn't look at Jesus in all of his perfection and say, ah, you know what, i got to punish something. So I'm just going to punish Jesus and call it good in all his sinless perfection. Jesus wasn't just a scapegoat. Let me let me let me let me let me let me lay out my, my punishment on this this undeserving person over here, and 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 that'll suffice. In, in some sort of mind-melting reality swap, God made Jesus the one who knew no sin. He made him to be sin in a categorically objective way. When God looked at Christ on the cross, he saw a curse. As Galatians says, when God looked at Christ on the cross, He saw all the ugliness and all the vile offensiveness of our sin, of all the sin of any saint in the past, and of all the sin of any saint that will come. When God looked at Christ on the cross, He did not see His Son. He saw sin. And then He poured out His wrath upon that sin. God's holiness and justice had to be satisfied. Sin had to be punished. And the full fury of God's anger at sin was aimed at the person of his own son as he made him to be that sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of that agony. The one who knew no sin the one who had never known the displeasure of God, the one who had never known the frustrating struggle against the flesh, the one who had never known the guilt of having wronged anyone, suddenly he knew it all. He felt it all. He bore it all. Every word, every thought, every deed for every believer of every time. And he felt that all on our behalf. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This first reality altering exchange of of the prince's exchange of, of sinlessness for sin, it was on our behalf. It wasn't some just sort of perverted sick little example of cosmic child abuse okay a lot of of people will say what what kind of god would do that to his own son that's just child abuse well it's not child abuse and it's neither on the other hand as we've already demonstrated was it some sort of horrendous twist of events that god lost control of and he said no 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 not that and then suddenly they killed his son that's not what happened either This was a purposeful exchange planned and executed by God himself on our behalf because we had a need. What need is that? I think we're very familiar with it, but it never hurts to be reminded of the the wretchedness of our own nature and the depravity of who we are. So let's look at a few passages. Psalm 143. Psalm 143, the first couple of verses say this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. No man living is righteous. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verse 20, it says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, it says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about us. He's talking about mankind. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That's a problem, folks. That's a serious problem. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. appreciation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We had a huge need. were We're under fierce, fierce condemnation, inescapable condemnation One more, Colossians 3, 5 through 7. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. There's one camp. Ah, verse 7. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Ah, there's everybody. One camp. The camp of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, which is sin, which results in condemnation, which is a problem. And that's our need. That is our need. My need and your need, because we're all sinners, condemned by our very nature as sinners, sentenced by our every action as sinners, who's even so-called... Good deeds are like dirty rags before a holy God. and So this astounding exchange of the one who knew no sin was made to be sin was not an example of divine child abuse. It was an example of divine love. Love that a perfectly holy God had for his condemned enemies who had rebelled against him. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It wasn't child abuse, it was love. Love for his enemies who had a need. Who had a need they couldn't do anything about. But how how does it benefit us? How is it on on our behalf? And here's the second exchange. It's the pauper's exchange. We had the prince's exchange of sinlessness to sin... And now we have the pauper's exchange of sinfulness for righteousness. We see this in the second phrase. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that. We find that the ability to perform our exchanges in this phrase as pauper's is the reason that the, the royal prince, Jesus himself, his exchange occurred. The sinfulness of God was exchanged for, with, with sin for a particular reason and that reason lies with us. This was the reason God the Father established His plan before time. Why He laid it out in full detail and with full awareness, striving toward an end which would ultimately bring Him glory so that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the character of our exchange. We, being In this immediate example and then pulled beyond it, Paul and his companions on the mission of reconciliation, that's what he's talking about, and by extension each and every believer who has saving faith in Christ, we were sinful, we were characterized by sin, we were controlled by sin, we were condemned by sin, and yet when God made Christ to be that sin, that wasn't the end of the matter right there. No, because not only was all of our filth and all of our vile disobedience laid over Christ, not only was our certificate of debts nailed against the cross, not only was our account zeroed out in recovery from the negative, it was filled to the brim with the positive. See, as fully as as Christ had gone from absolute righteousness to sin, So we have gone from a pervasive sinfulness to absolute righteousness in our being. This is not a potentiality or a possibility. When it says so that we might become, don't read the word might become as as giving some sort of hopeful outcome, okay? It's not a potentiality. The Greek construction uses a particular case and a particular conjunction, uh, a particular clause marker to, to indicate that the, the phrase that follows is just the result. So when we see so that, they use a particular case to say so that this is the result. At that point in time, when Christ hung on the cross and God poured out his wrath on the sin that he saw hanging there, he did so so that the result would be our, would be our transformation into the righteousness of God. What does that mean, to become the righteousness of God? Are we suddenly living life in just this, this perfect sinlessness of, of, of action and word and deed um, with, the, with the same results that, that, that Christ had? Now nah, we, we would prove God a liar if that was the intent of this passage. George Zimick has a helpful study on the diakosune um, word that is used here. There's a verb use of the word to make righteous, and a, um, there's, a, there's a noun use of the same word. So, Dr. Zimmick helps us to understand that the verb to make righteous, as used in the epistles, has a forensic sense, as if it's used in a court of law, to declare someone something, to cause to be right. That's a verb. And then the use of the noun, like we see here, as we are turned into the righteousness of God, it refers to the status of being made right. The status, the forensic status of being right. Packer agrees and says, on the ground of Christ's obedience, God does not impute sin, but imputes righteousness to sinners who believe. So Paul's point in this passage here in 2 Corinthians is a parallel of exchanges. Okay, As Christ underwent a status change a change of of being from not knowing sin to being sin, so we undergo a status change of being from being sinful to being righteous. The righteousness that Jesus demonstrated in his perfect life on earth suddenly becomes our righteousness. We become that righteousness as if we actually had lived those days. In status, as God, who is the judge of all, looks at each one of his children, that's the reality. As he looks at each of you who has placed your faith in the personal work of Christ, he sees the righteousness of God. He does not see our sin or our failings. In that in that state of, of 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 being, he sees the righteousness of God. One of the songs that we're gonna sing during communion puts it puts it very well. It says this, His robes for mine. Oh wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. All right, kids, how many of you are in school right now? Raise your hands. How many of you all know what a report card is? Okay, so you get grades, right? It's a little bit like this, okay? Everything falls a little bit short, but it's a little bit like this. Pretend you have all Fs. That's a bad report card, right? And to get into heaven... You have to go and get all A's, but you can't get all A's. You have all F's. Is it enough for you to go from C's or uh, from F's to C's? No. You can't just take away the F's. You have to get A's. And so it's a little bit like when, when Jesus became sin and we became righteousness, all our F's went away and we got always in perfection, like we'd earn them, like they were ours, and they are ours in Jesus. And that is how we get into heaven, is on Jesus' report card, as it were, because it's in him. Those two words are crucial. They anchor us in the source and strength of our salvation. The The words of that song, in Christ I live, for in my place he died These two words place us in the sphere sphere of the being of Christ. Our salvation depends on Him. Our righteousness depends on Him. And as long as He is dependable, those truths are dependable. Ephesians 1 correlates in a tremendous way with this idea. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In to him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. In him. The blessing of those two words is that it mitigates for us against the terror of our own faithfulness, an unfaithfulness, rather. Those two words, in him, mitigate against The terror of our own unfaithfulness. If our place if our faith is placed solely in the personal work of Christ, then we are as aware as King David that our own blights of sinfulness they are no match for the blinding purity of the righteousness that God bestows on his followers. David lied, committed adultery, and murdered, and yet ultimately, as he was broken over a sin, repented of it, extolled the fact that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he didn't even know what the fulfillment of that was to be in the person of Christ in his sinlessness as he took on our sin And gave us that righteousness. And so in Christ, as fully as he became sin and bore the penalty for that sin, we are just as fully the righteousness of God. Now, there's a warning. We don't rightly live under that grace, forgiveness, and righteousness if our response to that is to abuse it and to delight in continuing in sin simply because God's grace and righteousness exist. We studied that in Romans 6 where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But we're talking about the fundamental transaction of being, of status, of God's perspective that happened at the cross. And in that transaction, Jesus Christ had his perfect sinlessness exchanged for sin, and our perfect sinfulness was exchanged for the righteousness of God. So if you realize your sin and the impending judgment, if you see the glorious truth that the Son of God became sin, became your sin and my sin, so that the punishment was borne by Him that we deserved. if you acknowledge the fact that He rose from the dead and lives today, if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus and in His work alone, then you are the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God and nothing can change that. As you encounter temptations through life, sometimes you'll emerge victorious and sometimes you'll succumb and you'll sin. You'll fall into sin and yet you are the righteousness of God. In Christ, as God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of God. If you truly are in Christ and that reality is yours, folks, there is nothing that can mar the beauty of that righteousness that God sees when he looks at you as the judge. He'll chastise you as a father, seeking to to sanctify and grow his children practically in, in, in the daily living process of becoming more like the image of Christ. And yet, in a fundamental way, we are unchanging righteousness. As unchanging as the price that Christ paid on that cross... As unchanging as his life is in heaven, because our righteousness is in him, not in ourselves. It's in him. Do you see the beauty of that? That we can't mess that up. Because if we mess that up, then we're messing up his sacrifice on the cross, Now, again, like Paul says, you don't go out and sin all the more just because that's so cool and you've got a a fire safety card because then that reveals that you're not in him. But this is the message that we preach to ourselves. It's the message we preach to the world, that in Christ, the reconciliation between helpless, hopeless sinners and a holy, just God is absolutely complete. When you stumble and sin, preach that to yourself, that if you are in Christ, Christ became sin and you became righteousness. Remind yourself of who and what you depend on for your salvation and the righteousness, that perfect A report card that gets you access into heaven. When you speak to the unsaved, this is what you preach to them, that they cannot do anything on their own, and yet everything has been done on their behalf. Beloved, do not dare to detract In your own life or in the lives of others, do not dare to detract from the fullness of the penalty paid by Christ or the purity of the righteousness that we wear. Instead, rest in that, rejoice in that, proclaim those truths abroad And in that security and in that delight and in that joy and in the wonder of that truth, you then pursue the daily growth in practical sanctification that reflects the fact that in Christ we are the righteousness of God.